0: fitness reborn podcast is a companion piece to renaissance fitness personal training this podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only it does not in any way constitute as medical advice if you have a medical concern please seek out your provider All right. Hello and welcome. This is the latest uh, episode of the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, and my guest today is Diamond Well. And uh, here he is. (laughs) Very excited to be here. Uh, Diamond Well is a uh, dad, um, a husband, and a lifestyle mentor, and he's got all kinds of things he's going to talk to us about today. So welcome, man. Sean, thank you.
1: And I just got to say, Sean, for those that don't know, Sean is someone that is so passionate about helping people. He shows up on his week off to talk to me. So <laughs> I, I just got to commend you for that, Sean, because, you know, I uh, I had a mentor once and uh, one of my first yeah. business mentors and uh, I used to joke around, but he's like, why do you want to be an entrepreneur? Why do you want to run your own business? I'm like, well, because I hear you get to work less. <laughs> he's like, yeah, you're right. You will only work half days. I'm like, see, I told you, and he goes, yeah. You either work the first twelve hours or the last twelve hours of the day, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And it always That's pretty much it. it. It's pretty much it, but it never yep. turns off, right? It never turns no. off, and it, ne- uh, it never it never yeah. really
0: turns off. Now, yeah. so um, yeah, I could have just like zeroed out the entire week and done absolutely nothing, but then I would have <laughs> I would have gone crazy. Honestly, I mean, yeah. I'm just I'm not conditioned for that sort of thing here. So <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I can relax when I need to, but yeah. to just kind of you know, power down completely and not do anything. Um nope, not me. So <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I, I guess I guess I'm in the the right line of work then, I suppose. So but yeah. but uh, so die whenever I have someone on here because I just, you know, I wanna reap information as much as I can from the people I talk to. Mm-hmm. Um and because, you know, I know a little something about you, which is why you're here, but the people listening probably don't know anything Mm. about you so i like to kind of reverse engineer and start from the very beginning Mm. and so i like to kind of ask you what's the what's the backstory here and what brought us to this moment that you and i are now having this conversation
1: let's just start with the big question first no i i (laughs) yeah get it out there i love it though i love it because you know i i alluded to you before we hit record that i'm a big Mm -hmm. fan of uh Superheroes, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. big. I'm a closet comic book collector, and uh, been so most of my life. I love it. Love comics. Love the inspiration that they 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 infuse us with. Um, but here, here's the thing, you know, um, every good story has an origin. There, there's usually something that motivated us to right. go left when we could have gone right, to go up when we could have gone down, you know, to turn back when we could have just pushed through, and and. I love that because that's really the, the finest point in human psychology is why do we do the things that we do, but also when faced with adversity? And my life's been nothing shy of adversity, but we all have it. We all have it. you know, We all have a story. We all have an origin story of where we we, we did learn something that's helped us get to where we are now and uh we don't always learn right away sometimes we have to hit our head up against the wall a few times before we (laughs) lets it sink in and we realize you know what maybe there's a different direction to go maybe maybe i should try something a little bit different um but we're stubborn right we Mm -hmm. we like to keep trying things sometimes expecting different results and uh einstein's got a theory on that too um but here's the thing uh as a child you know at nine years to age 14 i uh learned to deal with my emotions, not a very healthy way. I, I actually learned to eat my emotions, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I found that I had all this control over how I ate. And I also learned very early on by eating certain things, I could elicit certain emotional responses. So certain foods made me feel a certain way. Now, most of this feeling that I attached to the foods that I ate were very quick, short lived and, uh, often would make me feel worse after the fact. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by this is uh, from nine on, you know, I learned that eating foods that had a lot of sugar content, but very low nutritional value. It made me feel pretty good in the moment. I forget about some of the other challenges. And, Mm -hmm. and here's the thing, food just became an escape for me. Now you factor in video games as well as movie watching, which were my two favorite pastimes at that time. Again, forms of escape, because yeah. there was things going on in my life at that time. I didn't know how to navigate. I didn't have the the, the mental capacity, nor did I have the environmental resources. When I mean by that connection around me that could offer help. And what I mean by this is I, I was my parents separated and divorced when I was quite young. I'm, I'm almost 46 now. So just to sort of put a timeline to this, I'm referring to something that happened 35 years ago, but right. 35 years ago, when you look at marital statistics versus what they are today, very different. You know, yeah. back then there was only one other person in my class of thirty other kids that had parents that weren't together. Still, you know, I was one of two kids that had parents that had separated and ultimately divorced. Now, flip the the coin today. Now, my kids in their own classes, you know, over half of those relationships aren't the original parents being together anymore. You know, so right. there's a lot more resources. There's more conversations around this. We better understand how to help people in that situation. So I had to cope with things and figure it out on my own you know, and, and I didn't figure it out very well. Okay. And, uh, by the time I hit 15, I was what the doctor said to my mom, Betty Ann, your son die is morbidly obese. Now you're someone from a, a fitness background, Sean, and you work mm-hmm. with individuals and often, you know, releasing weights, one of our big motivations for change, especially physically speaking. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a happy place. You know, when you meet people that are in that state of unhealth, we can recognize mental health is often challenged more than the physical health. And and there's a connection. Yes, uh, we can dive into that later. But uh, I was hurting internally and externally, you know, dealing with a lot of physical ailments and, and other symptoms based on a poor lifestyle. Walking up the stairs. Yeah, of course I got winded. Could I tie up my own shoes? No, that's why I preferred Velcro. <laughs> like Dude, or slip on shoes because bending over to tie my shoes was a workout. Like simple little things that we take for granted. And that was my everyday. And uh, I got to a place where I eventually just couldn't stand being the way that I was anymore. And I was more afraid of not changing Sean than I was of mm-hmm. changing. Anybody that's listening or watching this, this is what I want you to take to heart. You know, um, big changes happen for us very often. And sometimes it's fear that motivates us. But Fear can be a great motivator, not necessarily something to run away from, but it can also be something that motivates us to run towards. And, and for me, it was running towards a healthier version of me. But it was me being more afraid that if I, at 15 years old I didn't make some changes, I knew by 20, life wasn't going to be as good as it was at 15, and I thought it was pretty hard at 15. So what's my alternative? Ah, figure out how to make some changes that make me feel better, you know, and deal with some of the symptoms. And so I got to work. It took education, you know, it took developing new friendships with new mentors that could support me in learning how to navigate these physical and mental changes and uh, it took two years, two years to release the way to develop a new lifestyle. It was a hard two years. There was a lot of challenges that came up in that because I had to learn new ways to relate to food uh-huh. as well as relate to friends and family and, and also how, how to get past some of the depression and social anxiety that I felt. You know, I had some mental health problems that arose from that five years of living in that morbidly obese state. And, uh, but here's the thing, and I'll sort of close it on this note on that section of the story is, you know, when you navigate a big change in your life and you come out the other side, you often come out changed, like feeling different about your life, about yourself. And it's at that moment, I always invite people turn around and look where you came from acknowledge the steps you took to get there because every step was an action and it wasn't necessarily an action that maybe was easy to do, but you did it anyways. And so to acknowledge that change happened because we ourselves as individuals take uh, inventory of our life and we say, this is not what I want to be. This is where I want to go. And I'm going to start walking towards that. It is a process we can repeat and repeat again and again but often that self-confidence is lacking. So we don't see that ability in us. And that's where working with someone like you, Sean is invaluable for people. Why? Because you yourself have learned a good amount of information on how to help people stay more motivated, stay more focused, but also achieve change. And us as trainers, as, as mentors, we can breathe into those people's lives, belief in themselves until they themselves have it. That self-belief, you know, and, uh, I'm so grateful for having those people in my life at the important pinnacle moments where I could have gone left versus right. You know, having those people, that community definitely helps when you're feeling alone and unsure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was my childhood, man. And then, you know, I, I moved from food and uh, I, I hadn't dealt with the social anxiety yet. And some of that nervousness and depression I was dealing with, even though I got physically fitter, Sean, I got more confident. I still felt really bad about myself kind of felt like I was an imposter, a fake. I still felt like that morbidly obese teenager and it would often created big struggles for me to connect with others. You know, I, I was, I wouldn't say socially awkward, but I, I found it really awkward to create conversation with people, you know, to maintain eye contact, open up about myself, to answer questions of ask questions, to ask questions back of somebody else to create a conversation or connection. I struggled with that. And, uh, I learned on at 17 almost 18 that if I have a few drinks, whoa, look at this, I can talk to anybody, I can be the the life of the party, I can mm-hmm. be somebody different. <laughs> Anyways, that that opened up a, a 16-year adult journey into still dealing with some of those negative emotions and self-care habits that weren't serving me and and Man, I, I learned to – alcohol just replaced what food was for me before. And uh, that, that opened up a whole nother ball of wax. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. But um, that that's the childhood. So that's sort of the origin of how things started. And here's why I brought this up. And thank mm-hmm. you for asking this, Sean, was um, at 17, I remember the day very clearly where a friend of my mom's came to the house. And they came – what I believe in terms someone showed up, to, especially one of my fr- mom's friends, you, you know, uh, it was like they were coming to see my mom. I mean, that's just why people would show up. They didn't come there to see me or my brother. I mean, come on, we're a couple kids. Like, why would they come to hang out with us? But here's the thing they came over, and I'm like, yeah, mom's in the back doing some gardening. Like, great. They just sort of stood there looking at me still. And I'm like, okay, what do you want? Like, she's in the back. Go talk to her. And, and next second, they opened up and said, hey, do you have a few minutes? Just like to have a talk with you, <laughs> you know, me, a 17 year old person at the time. And this person being in their 40s, a friend of my mom's, I'm like, where was I this last weekend? What did I do again? Am I in trouble? <laughs> like, you know, like the brain just starts thinking an adult wants to talk to me. I must be in trouble. Turns out, you know, they sat me down at the table. They acknowledged all the changes they had seen me navigate over that two year period. And then they started to ask questions very specifically about their own life and lifestyle. They themselves wanted to make some changes. They weren't sure how to do it, but they came to me because they believed that I could offer some value and support to help them with those changes. 17 years on the planet at that point, that was the first time I actually felt like I had value to offer. And it was amazing. I felt so fulfilled in helping that person navigate some nutrition choices, navigate some fitness direction, like just helping them take those first few steps of change. I felt so good doing that. I knew right then and there, it didn't matter what I was doing with the rest of my life, I'd be helping people in some fashion. And that was it. And that's what set me in motion. And literally 28 years I've been in the health and wellness industries helping people with change. You know? So uh, that's the origin right there, man. Uh, 10 minutes unpack that story, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you think uh do you think there's something particular about your your personality that allowed you to make those changes so early in life? Cuz I'm thinking like Say so, you know, you you said you started making these turnarounds when you're around mm. 15 years old. You saw, you know, the doctor told your mother that you are morbidly obese. Mm. And somehow that registered to you in your brain in such a special way that you got up off your butt and started making some changes. Now, I'm thinking like the average 15 year old boy does not go from. A to b like that or maybe a to z like that and say oh man i really gotta turn my life around otherwise i am screwed if i stay like this for very much longer do you think there's do you think that maybe there's a mechanism that is built into your personality maybe built into your brain that allowed you to hit that switch and to just dramatically alter your life like that
1: well, I think that's a great question, Sean. And, and am I wired a certain way that might be different than others? I, I honestly don't think so. Now, of course, we're all products of, of both that nature versus nurture idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like the environment we grow up in and the people that are feeding into us and influencing us definitely shapes a lot of who we are and and, and often what we're becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's sort of a, a DNA that we are born with, right? And there's a certain components to that that I definitely see a bit of my mom and a bit of my dad in me, for sure. Now, you can say that's positive or negative. It's often a bit of both. Uh, we get the best and the worst at times um, based on them being our first models, you know, role models, I should say, and uh, mentors. But um, for for me, the change didn't happen right away. It happened within a few months after that that visit to the doctor. And, it, you know, to be fair, my parents tried to offer help, Sean. Mm -hmm. They they would come and they would offer like to to hire a nutritionist or or to get a personal trainer for me, get a gym membership. Like they would always come with these great suggestions and they thought they were helping me by making them. But I wasn't looking for help at that time. In fact, every time they came to me and offered help, I was like, you think I'm fat? You think I, I have no value? You think I need to change? You don't like me as I am. You know, like that is what I received and interpreted their action to. Now, this is very, very common. Very common. I, I think anybody that's listening or watching this, you can probably think back to moments in your own life where people that love and care for you have seen you struggling. They've come wanting to help and they offer that hand forward. But we often take it as a very big negative, you know, and it's usually our own mental state, our own perspective on the situation and ourselves. And so that was my 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 typical way of dealing with people offering help was I was just instantly thinking, you're not nice. You want me to change. You think I'm bad the way I am. And so I would shut down and push those people away. I would sometimes act out, you know, I'd I'd isolate a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's also because of the, the, shyness that I was living with you know and I still deal with that to an extent I'm a I'm an extroverted introvert as I like to say you know like
0: I choose <laughs> to
1: work as an extrovert because of what I want to do with my life I know that that's a fear and it's something I have to overcome <laughs> same way
0: <laughs> good same way same, same way it. I mean I mean well, I, that's why that's what brings us here right now here I mean wow. I am I am not naturally an outward person but yeah. I You know, I said, and I've said this before, I kind of made mention this on my Facebook a while ago. It was like, there's two types of introverses, people that allow their introversion to control their lives and people who don't. So, um, well said, and I think I'm in that latter category. Do you think you've always been in that latter category? Did you sort of get to that other
1: work that you've done?
0: No, no. I, I was probably firmly in the former category, yeah. But and I don't know what was the jumping off point, but uh, at some point I decided to make the jump and to actually because I, I guess I realized that if I really want the things out of life that I do want, I can't just live in my shell all yes. the time um, yes. because it's that's just not going to happen. I have to, and I still struggle with it. I mean, I don't like going to parties. I don't like you know mingling with people and what you said earlier about alcohol being yeah. you know, a nice little lubricant to help social yep. lubricant to, to get yes. you out there to talk to people and do things that you otherwise would not be otherwise would not do. Um, I can identify with that completely. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I, yeah, you know, I, I, hear that 100%. <laughs> so,
1: got uh, similar yeah. backgrounds, you know, mm-hmm. similar experiences. And I know there's people listening and watching this, you know, that are nodding their head like, oh, man, I've been there. Or maybe you're there right now. And Uh it it can feel a bit isolating at times. Uh, And I often like to remind people, you know, the idea of being alone and feeling lonely, they're one choice apart, right? Right. Like one, we tend to choose and accept. The other one is a predicament we find ourselves by not taking action. And, And I always say we're one choice away from stopping that or, or mm-hmm. making a change. We're just one decision, one action away from starting to create the change that we want to experience, you know, or, uh, or achieve in our own lives. And uh, but believing that and doing it are two different things. <laughs> and right. and it's, it's the action of actually getting started. I know is the, the, the most problematic step of any journey is the first one. And it's actually before we even take the first step is do we have the clarity as well as the confidence to take the first step? And it's that lack of clarity and lack of confidence that often leads to us procrastinating or putting off the things that we have identified. We said, this is important. I want to make these changes. I, I really want to make these changes. And yet there's that little hang up of preventing us from doing the first thing. Mm. And, and I find it's often lack of clarity, clarity of direction, clarity of an outcome that we may be working towards, which, again, provides us direction. Because as we get more clear, we feel more confident that we're sure of what to do. And when we feel more sure on what to do, we don't procrastinate. We don't put off as much as we normally do. We, we start to take decisive, purposeful action. And all you can do is you take the action. How does it go? Did it go like I thought it might? It didn't? Okay. What can I do a little bit differently next time? And it's just this constant ebb and flow, ebb and flow. And, mm-hmm. and that's how we, we we navigate things, right? And we navigate our lives is that one step at a time. I mean, it's a freaking cliche, but it's true. And Trying to, to remove ourselves from the expected outcomes. That is the part I try to invite people to do. Because if you're doing things only based on a guaranteed outcome, when the outcome doesn't come in the, the, the as quickly or as easily as we may have thought it should be coming, it's a reason to quit. And, and so removing ourselves to do the action for the sake of the action and appreciating what that action is or means to us versus tying it to a desired outcome even though the goal is a good thing to have a goal in mind, I'm not saying don't have goals, but don't expect goals in an unrealistic time frame, right? And, mm-hmm. and being realistic that it is a journey, and I'm just happy to be taking the journey. It's like I, I, I prioritize my health every day. It's a non-negotiable. I have at least 30 minutes set aside every single day to, to do a little bit of work on my body, a little bit of work on my mind, as well as a little bit of of work on my inner energy, you know, and some people might call it a spirit, a soul. I mean, I just call it the thing that gives you that mm, X factor, you know, makes you, right. you like, what do you do to, to, to foster and to nourish that? And, and so it's that three prong approach. And every day it's 2% of 24 hours. It's non non-negotiable. Like that 30 minutes is going to me today. I'm selfish about it. I'm like super retentive about it. Okay. Like I'm like, yeah. no, that is my time. And I'm going to honor that time for me. And I find that when people make that, that commitment to a minimum amount of time every day for themselves, you will start to see changes because it's focused, condensed effort and it happens every day. So you're consistent and frequent enough to start to navigate some, some changes as you start to do those actions. And that's the minimum place that I needed to go from. So even when I go back to 15, it wasn't a matter of me thinking about all the things I wanted to change all at once.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was like, what can I start doing now that I'm not already doing that I know ticks a lot of boxes? You and I both know this already, Sean, just based on the lifestyles that we live, that physical fitness, exercising, has a benefit to every aspect of our lives, personally and professionally. Now, there might be people listening to this, like, oh, I don't buy that. I'm like, well, you obviously haven't done it. (laughs) You know, like that would be my pushback because when you start (laughs) to do the fitness, yeah. Do the
0: business, I don't, I don't right know now, why but... you'd be listening to this if you didn't buy it. So, <laughs> so I, 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 don't, I
1: don't understand Fair why not.
0: you're here then. you
1: know, <laughs> enough, but, but you know what? I've been there too. Mm-hmm. And, and Sean, you've probably been there as well. And, and there's that little bit of gray area where we're not really confident about ourselves. We're searching <laughs> for a solution. But we're just not sure yet, and we're just uh, unclear of where we're going or why we're going there. And and it's that lack of defining of goals or, or wants, more importantly, that that gives us a little bit of a, a buffer, if you will, to to be okay if we don't get results. Right? It's kind of that thing. It's like I don't want to say what I want because then if I don't get it, it's not a big deal. But if I say what I want, I start making changes to go after what I want, and I don't get it. There's a reason for me to feel bad about myself. So why even start? And that is a, a very common mentality when it comes to change. You know, like you just think about the fear of change is often the fear of, of just that, the unexpected. And change is going to require us doing things that's not normal. <laughs> you know, if it was normal, we would have been doing it already. And and mm-hmm. so it's the psychology of change that I find so fascinating. And, and, and so the best thing that anybody can do is, is just figure out what's the minimum amount of time you can say is non-negotiable in your own life. Where every day it's not a matter of giving. Oh, I got a laundry list of hundred things I got to do during my half an hour for myself today. No, no, no. I'm going to do this one thing because this one thing, like me, it's fitness. I know I'm one workout away from mentally feeling better, physically feeling better, and emotionally feeling better. You know, like I know I all those boxes, those metrics get better when I have a workout. They just do, and so I'm like, even when I'm down in the dumps. And I'm like, oh, I'm having just a down day. I'm not feeling good about myself. You know, I'm I'm feeling guilty about maybe some choices I made earlier in the week. Or I had a, I had a fight with my wife, you know, like it just, those little things, it's amazing how it impacts me, you know, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, like it just, it affects me in all these areas, especially my relationship with my family. When things aren't in good place, gosh, it's amazing how everything else is affected. But I know if I have a workout, I come out of that workout feeling more clear, more sure of myself but also I have a better understanding of what to do next to start to make things better again. Right. And it's because of that grounding that I get through physical fitness and you know, also mental health. Yes. Physical health. Oh yeah. And my rest of my decisions I make in a day or a couple of days after having a really good workout, they're all going to lean more towards the positive. I know this about me and that's why I know anytime I'm in the dumps, I'm just one workout away from feeling better. And this is that thing I want to invite others to to recognize. It's just getting outside for a quick 30-minute brisk walk. That is enough for you to notice a shift. And it's easy because you probably know how to walk. You've probably been doing it all your life. And if there's one activity you want to be able to do in the last years of your life is walk. You know, when we lose that dependency you know that that dependability of being able to move freely throughout Mm -hmm. wherever we want to move, we know quality of life. Takes a turn for the worse, right? So why not do that activity whenever you can, you know? And 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 so that that's just one example. And and obviously there's lots of examples you and I could both pull from, um, but I know that that's been one that's really helped me with my mental health. Is just getting outside for a thirty minute walk. It's been instrumental. Instrumental.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I took a walk just yesterday. It was a very nice (laughs) afternoon. I took a walk just yesterday. And you know, as I've mentioned before on previous um episodes, like that's where it began with me in my adult life mm-hmm. nearly twenty years ago. It was just like it was just walking and it is funny how it kind of comes all, f- all full circle in life though, because mm-hmm. when you start out being physical, I mean well, it doesn't really start out that way, but that's the yeah. big thing so when you when you're a bait, when you're a young kid, learning how to walk that's your actual step literal Mm -hmm. step towards being a fully functioning independent person that's right and Mm -hmm. later in life when you start to lose that ability it's um it really is particularly devastating i mean people don't really i've noticed as they get older they don't really get so upset about losing certain things like oh if they were a gymnast when they were a kid they don't really care so much that they can't like do tumbles anymore or mm. swing from beams or anything like that. But doing something as fundamental and seemingly rudimentary as walking, losing the ability to walk, that really is tough on people. It's- You're right. It's It's hard, right? I mean,
1: it's one of those little small activities. And when I say small, it's only small because we take it for granted. It's actually Mm -hmm. one of the biggest activities that we do in our life. If we think about what walking means to us, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that uh, I mean, like you said, it it is literally that freedom in life. Like that ability to just be mobile. Right. To have the self-confidence that I can go from point A to B to C to D, because it's both uh, a metaphor, <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. also literal, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, it, and, and so it is a very important movement, but it's also a movement that works our musculature as well as our uh, resistance. So we get some good impact, which is great for mm-hmm. bone density, especially for women as they age and men too, men too. But oh, yeah. men have a, a, a stronger uh, um, affinity to weight training than women. And as such, if we do more strength training as men, that's why we also get, you know, stronger bones, right? As the bone density. Right. So, so without telling women they have to lift weights, uh, which you should be, but uh, it's okay. I'm not here to say should or shouldn't. Um, but I invite. I women, will. You should I invite women to do more weight <laughs> training. Thank you, thank you, Sean. Um, but, but you know, the walking is huge, and I also love to put on either great podcasts like your own, Sean, or I'll listen to an audio book. Or, mm-hmm. or even right. a, a TED Talk. And so my walking time has actually turned into not something that's just physical, but it's very mental for me. And it's enriching. So I, mm-hmm. I, I come from that 30 minutes with this just usually a lot more clarity, but also great ideas, just ideas that I can act on. And, uh, and I just feel more connected to my life and, and what's going on around me. So there's a lot of check marks from just that little walk. And I always say it's, it's probably the easiest activity to get people started with. Even when people start working with me. For the first month, I don't do any strength training at all. No cardio workouts either. But you're going to walk every day. And you're going to learn how, how, you, how do you feed the mind as well. Because you know? those are the parts that need the biggest support initially. Mentally, right? And also creating the habit to move every day. Right. Those two little things, though, once you get those in motion, it's pretty hard to take them out of motion. Right. You know what I mean? Like, cause yeah. it, it, it's like people know that, oh, if I take a, a, an ibuprofen, you know, it gives me a certain immediate response. You know, it makes that pain go from a nine to maybe a seven. Great. So it has a little bit of a positive effect. Well, walking to me is the thing that takes my anxiety from like a nine down to a four.
0: Right. Exactly. Do you know I'm, what I mean? Like I would, that's, I even, that's it. Yeah. I would even take it like a step further too. just how important walking is too, because when you think about it. <laughs> It is the defining feature of what makes us human from other primate, right. primate animals. It's the ability to walk upright, Yeah. you know, <laughs> as the main source of locomotion. Yes. So from that point of view, it just looks like it's, it's a real impairment to not walk. Yeah. <laughs> not to it, say it that people be. who, I, I, I'm going to clarify, I'm not going to say people who cannot, who don't have the ability to walk are not mm-hmm. any less human. That's not yeah. what I'm saying. I'm just yeah. saying that it, walking upright is, it is um, very, a cornerstone of human physical movement. Correct. Our physiology
1: hasn't just evolved overnight. It's taken eons. You right. know. And uh, this is the nice thing about our DNA, which sort of, I'll piggyback what you just shared, because uh, indirectly, this is exactly what you're saying too, Sean, is that this DNA that's got us to where we are today, it hasn't evolved overnight. It's been a lot of nights, you know, Mm -hmm. like literally eons, you know, like millions of years to get to where we are today. But the DNA, there's so much information in there. And in particular, one human quality that every human being has in their DNA, and that is the natural ability to be resilient. I mean, you look at human beings, we are very resilient. I mean, my climate change friends are like, humanity is way too resilient. <laughs> we've taken over this planet you know we've taken we're top of the food chain for sure we got eight billion of us we're, we're utilizing a lot of resources every day you know like and so i understand where they're going with that and that train of thought but i mean to to the positive we can handle hard stuff yeah. and we not only evolve past the hard stuff but we we get better and stronger as a species for for enduring the hard stuff and we have to remember that's in all of us. We can do hard things. We can do things that make us feel very uncomfortable and we can come out the other side and be slightly different than we were when we went into it. And and all of us have this in us, whether we acknowledge it or don't, it happens.
0: Uh-huh.
1: We all encounter hard stuff all the time, but we have the mentality to not only reason through that, but to also forecast other ways of getting through it. You know, like to to, to envision what we need to do to be able to go out to someone and ask for help, to be vulnerable, to say, listen, I don't know how to do this. It's intimidating the hell out of me. In fact, I'm finding it really hard to get started. Could you help me with this? Again, as humanity, we, we're very good at helping each other when we want to. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to make this a, a political soapbox or anything. But, uh, no, right, you know, I, I, I really feel no, that that, that's I, I, enough, I you. you know, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, so.
0: let's go into, so we yeah. we went pretty deep into the first phase of what mm. makes you you which was mm. your obesity from year 10 to year 15 mm. roughly speaking yeah yeah and so the second phase when you were older mm-hmm. was the the alcoholism yeah you know the now uh, the reason why i want to go into that is because i've never been an alcoholic and i don't drink at all myself mm. um but i have to imagine because i've known alcoholics Mm-hmm. I have to imagine, especially in, in current and recovering alcoholics, I've known them. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine that it is such an intense addiction because when they are in recovery, the process that they went through to go and recover and to stay in recovery is just about equally as intense. Mm-hmm. Like the folks that are go through Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a reason why they call it like, Alcoholics Anonymous is known as like a mini cult because the people who are, who get into it, they are so passionate about being in it. They found recovery, they found the pathway out. There's others in there that are like them. They are helping others. There is a system system of support built in, a system of community, and it just envelops them in in such an, an intense sort of way. I wonder if Alcoholics Anonymous, it's really just like a rechanneling of an addictive personality. Mm-hmm. So instead of your, you know, taking your addiction to a substance like alcohol or anything, narcotics or whatever, and then reinventing it, rerouting it into something else that's actually much healthier, which is rec- getting off of it, getting off the substance, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and helping others to do the same. And like I said, it's so out, it seems so outwardly intense and in such an intense environment, such an intense love for this kind of thing. The addiction to alcohol must be terrible. It must be an intense addiction.
1: It's a relationship, okay. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very easily seen as a toxic relationship, especially, um, because mm-hmm. it's often a relationship that is very one-sided, but also very selfish. And, and I think that's the piece we have to recognize is anybody that's in recovery or even if people are thinking about recovery, there's usually this level of awareness about oneself and mm-hmm. that we prioritize ourselves all the time. But more importantly, we also value the thing that we're seeking. So in my case, it was alcohol. I valued alcohol over me, over my life, over my family. I would choose knowing I'm choosing to have another drink now versus you know calling my wife back or getting home on the time I said I would be home, you know, like I I remember just little things. of I I would, I mean, basically little lies to myself. I would negotiate with myself and please note this too, though. And this is full disclosure. Uh, Anybody wants to read more on this? I've got a whole series of articles on my website called addiction free life. And, and I use the word addiction very loosely. Um, I, I started in with 12 step programs. Um, I, I really found a hard time connecting there. Uh, I only went to to about three or four meetings and I got a bunch of literature and I read it and I I really struggled accepting it, Uh, the label. You know, one of the, the tenets to the 12 step program is, first of all, acknowledging that we're powerless to this thing, to this desire, to this addiction, if you will. And I had a real hard time with that because, Sean, full disclosure, I was aware of my choices I was making. It wasn't like, oh, I'm drinking and I'm uncontrollably drinking. It was never that case. I was aware of what I was doing and I kept choosing it. It was a value thing. And often it was a form of escape for me. What started very innocently as me trying to get past my anxiety and this nervousness to connect with people, it it snowballed into something a lot more where it became just my normal way to engage with people, where I believed I needed it to engage with people. And that was a scary place to be because I didn't believe I could ever connect with anyone without alcohol. And so it became a very, very stable crutch to the point that it became my normal gait. And when I mean gait, like the way we walk, right? And if you walk with a crutch, well, you've learned how to function and to be mobile, but with the assistance of an aid. Well, for me, alcohol was the aid. You know, it was the thing that allowed me to get through some of that stuff. And, and it was my normal for 16 years. You know, the longest stint I'd ever gone without alcohol over that 16-year period was one month. I did the occasional sober January here and there, start the year off sober, you know, da-da-da. But always by February 1st, it was, oh, okay, we're partying tonight. We did it. We did it through a month, you know, like completely undoing (laughs) all the good I did in the last 30 days, of course. Um, But that was just sort of how I operated. And what was most successful for me when it came to navigating the changes I wanted to make was cognitive behavioral therapy, so CBT as well as something called logotherapy, which is this idea of aligning with your purpose, your passions, your, your mission, your vision, like really these, these these whys, you know, like the reason that, as the Japanese call it, your icky guy, right? Like, mm-hmm. why do you get up in the morning? What's, what's that driving force in our lives? And when we align with that force, we realize it is a self-starter. It gets us going and it can be a big enough reason to realign some of our choices when we have a strong, clear purpose in life, and so logotherapy was sort of pioneered by a gentleman by the name of Doctor Victor Frankel. He wrote a book yeah. called "Man's Search for Meaning." Man, yes, right, a yeah,
0: powerful
1: book. The second half of the book, first half, he's accounting about just the atrocities he witnessed and endured uh, through the concentration camps during World War II. He, he was moved around as a as a, a doctor. You know, he was positioned uh, often in a support role, tending to other, um, uh, other, uh, inmates. I mean, I don't even call them inmates. I mean, sorry uh, for lack of better term, like just for the persecuted groups that were being put through. And for him, he lost his entire family immediate and, and, and distant, uh, as well as, I mean, everything that he knew being, a, a, a German born, um, uh, with a a Jewish background, right? Like, and Mm -hmm. so he was just, oh my gosh, it was awful. Like, so the first half of the book is very graphic. I like to let people know that it's not, I mean, it's not a pretty story any way you look at it. It, It's historically factual. Um, but it it is very centering, you know, it, it makes, it it put things into perspective for me of, of how grateful I am to live in the time that we live as much as we got challenges. It's a very different world than what it was back in the forties and fifties, you know? And, um, his whole second half, he, he coins this understanding or, or, or instruction around what's called logo therapy. And he's considered sort of the, the granddaddy of this, this way of supporting people. And that with cognitive behavioral therapy I found was the most effective way for me to solidify the changes, but also solidify my goals, but aligning them with a purpose. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not just the goal for the sake of a goal. It's, it's like, okay, I want to get healthy and fit as an example. At 15 years old, I wanted to do that because I wanted a girlfriend. Okay. Like that was straight up, man. (laughs) Sean, I'm being honest. Like I wanted a girl to want me.
0: I gotcha. I (laughs) gotcha. I
1: wanted wanted to make the change physically so I could get what all my friends were getting attention from girls. That's what I wanted. And I believe that if I worked on my physique and I got healthy, that they'd want to talk to me. They might want me. I mean, my psychologist, when I worked with him, unpacked a lot there. Uh, obviously there's more than we can talk about today, but, um, What I realized was that that desire to be liked and wanted was something that perpetuated at different periods of my life, especially when I got into my 20s and 30s. I was constantly seeking validation because as a morbidly obese teenager, I wasn't getting that. I wouldn't get the attention. And the attention I got, I always felt was really negative. So I would avoid it. And, And so I was always looking to get that validation. And it's interesting when you start to see these patterns that are started when we're young. You know, we all have them, <laughs> good and the bad and the ugh. you know, they're there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I was able to navigate some of those changes as I became more aware of this an understanding of my motivations and what was a default setting that was programmed into me when I was young. Because once you're aware of that, you can start to do things to change it. And um, fast forward, you, you know, it took a, a number of years, but it wasn't until I was in my early 30s, my wife sat me down literally thinking about, well, she was discussing what it would be like to now be co-parents. Her and the girls live in a separate place and and literally us separating divorce, just like my parents did. That was something I did not want, but I realized based on the choices and the actions I was doing every day and how I kept choosing alcohol over my family, she was in the right to want that. I had no way to defend myself against that because to be honest, it was defenseless. There was no point in defending my actions because they weren't a value. They were me being selfish. And she asked me a question, Sean. And I share this in my TED talk I did last year, but she asked me, Guy, are you being the type of man that you would want to marry your daughters? And I'll tell you, that question, for some reason, my kids were four and six at the time that she asked this question 13 years ago, and I knew deep down I couldn't ever tell her yes. Nor could I justify my actions. I was living up to that point. And and that was a really hard realization. Like so hard. Because I realized everything that I'd always said I wanted to be. I wanted to be a great dad. I wanted to be a dedicated husband. I wanted to be an amazing business owner. You know, I want to be a community leader. These are all titles or, or important goals that I'd always said to myself as I was aging that I'd want to accomplish as I got older. And I realized the choices I kept prioritizing. And the habit I was prioritizing was actually taking me away from that impact and that ability to ever reach that. And so here I was looking at my wife across the table and I just burst into tears. I was just like, I had, I didn't know what else to say. And that was my first time really getting vulnerable with my wife. And it was in that moment I made a commitment to myself first, but then to my family, I was going to go one year without drinking. And as I told you before, you know, from the age 17 up to this point at 33, so 16 years, the longest I'd ever gone is one month without drinking. So nice. all of a sudden, I'm 12Xing the commitment, right? I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. going to go a whole year without drinking. Made the commitment. Day one, did it. Day two, you see, no problem. Day three, <laughs> and it started to get really hard. Yeah. First couple months in, it was really hard because as much as I made a commitment to say no to alcohol, I was in turn creating space to say yes to everything else that was important to me, but I wasn't following through. And I realized it was just, it was tough because as much as I'd been so good at working on the outside, that's the thing about the fitness industry, right? We get really good on helping people with the outside, the exterior, with some of the habits to create certain types of results. When we think about how we look and how we show up, but that internal work I'd never done before. I, Uh, Did I know what my purpose was? Did I know what my vision for my life was? Did I know what kind of dad I really wanted to be? I'd never really done the work to answer those questions and get clear in my mind what that meant. And so I realized I needed some help. And that's what I found. A psychologist started working with him for about four months. I found a relationships counselor. I worked with her for, uh, I guess, about three, four months. And and that condensed time of support was the first time I've ever had that kind of help. It opened up my eyes to a lot of things that I wasn't aware of little habits, little patterns, little thought patterns, especially, you know, how I was very quick to dismiss myself and dismiss, dismiss anything that I I was trying to do to offer value to people. I would automatically erode it or or never acknowledge it. You know, like I was very good at just keeping myself down. And I was given the help to to work through that. And as soon as I worked through that, Sean, everything changed. So much so at the end of that year, my wife's like, okay, you did the year. And I was like, yeah, I did the year. Holy crap. I'd never done that before. I didn't even think I was possible, to be honest with you. And I did it. She's like, do you want to celebrate? Share a bottle of wine. And I'm like, Uh.
0: no. But but
1: here's the thing, Sean. I wasn't worried. I could have said yes. And I know Mm -hmm. in the state that I was, I could have had a glass or two, and I'd be good with that. That'd be fine. Because I didn't feel any pull to even say yes or to say no. But what I did feel the pull to was, holy smokes, in the last 12 months, literally everything in my life has improved. Everything, like everything. Relationships with my kids, relationship with my wife, my business had started to grow again. I had more respect to the people that I was employing in my company. The company culture changed in my company, you know, and, and I didn't realize that how connected everything was in my choice to prioritize alcohol over everything else, how it was negatively affecting everything until I removed it. But I needed to have a period of sobriety, of clarity to see it. And here's the thing. So much changed in 12 months. I looked at my wife and I'm like, you know what, babe? What if I keep going? What do you think is possible then? And she's looking at me. She's like, I don't know. And I'm like, neither do I. But you know what? I kind of like to find out, please. And so, you know, here I am 13 years later. I have yet to have a drink again. But I, I, I don't feel anything negative to alcohol. I don't feel like it's something that has power over me. And, and, you know, and that's my only problem with the 12 step program, because if to truly embrace that protocol and that, that system, if you will, the process, you have to admit that you're powerless forever. You have to own a label. I'm an alcoholic and there's no ifs, ands, or or ifs, ands, or buts around that. You are that, and you will always be that. I I don't believe that. And that's me. You know, again, I'm not here to fight. 12 step. I have a lot of clients that are in recovery. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff for recovery groups. I've been on a lot of recovery podcasts. Um, and I'm very open on this. And, and just, I'm only sharing this because there are other methods. It's not just a 12 step program, but do your due diligence. Look into it. Explore. Because, bottom line, if you're even thinking that you need that kind of support, you do. You need that. You need a community. Mm-hmm. You need great people around. You need people that are prioritizing themselves, their health, their well being. But more importantly, what they wanted a life. And they're not gonna let some alcohol get in the way of preventing them from achieving that. And so get around that kind of like minded community and good things will happen. So uh it just wasn't the right one for me, but I found one that was, you know?
0: Right, right. So I guess the, the next question was is like if it wasn't necessarily alcoholism, in other words, you didn't you didn't mm-hmm. have a powerless relationship with alcohol where it just like manhandled you into using every single day. Yes. If it wasn't necessarily alcoholism then what do you suppose it really was what was the what was the addictive characteristic
1: Mm. well
0: okay that's you kind of you 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 said you don't like late you you sort of you you rejected the label of alcoholism at least in your case you rejected that label so but still something kept you going back to the drink for 13 years
1: Yes. So I guess, you know, for me was it became very functioning for me. It just was normal. Uh, And what I mean by normal is I I could consume a lot of alcohol. I was highly functioning even when I'd have too much to drink. You know, I was always jovial. I was uh, as I joke about it in my TED talk. You know, my Mm -hmm. friends and communities used to refer to me as fun guy die when I would drink, (laughs) you know, and, and that moniker stuck to the point where I believed it, too. I believe that that person was who people wanted to hang out with, was fun guy die, not die. Not die that chooses not to drink, you know? And that was a a startling moment when I really started to realize that I was chasing this other ego, if you will, this other persona to the point where I was thinking that that was the only persona that people valued. And, you know, if I'm challenged on that and and asked, well, did you really believe that was true? At periods of my life, I did. For sure. I believe that. Was it always true? No. Did I see glimpses of other things that would disprove that? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like I spent 13 years drunk. That wasn't the case, but it became a very simple way to end my day every day. You know, I I would justify my choices. But even while on the flip side, as a health advocate and someone that's here to help people get the most out of their life, and I recognize that You know, health is the foundation upon which every life is built. And the more solid the foundation, well, often the more resilient the life. And I was not practicing what I preach, you know. And and that disconnect and that mental, uh, it created a lot of self-doubt in myself, Sean, if I'm honest with you. You know, like and this imposter syndrome that people often refer to in psychology, I was definitely living that at times. You know, I'd say one thing, but then I'd, on the flip side, I was doing something else, which made me feel just out of integrity. And the weird thing was in those periods of, of lack of integrity for myself and, and trust that I was going to do the right things for the right reasons <laughs> would make me feel so bad that I would often think, oh, I have a couple of drinks. Oh, I'll be okay. I can forget about this. I'll think about it tomorrow, you know? And, and so it just became a very easy way to sort of push the serious stuff, the, the hard work to the side. Like asking ourselves the question, you know, what kind of man do I want to be? Now, I'm a man who identifies as a man, so that's a relevant question for myself. And But to ask that question, you know, what what does it mean to be a great man? And then to really think and qualify and quantify that. Because the clearer I am, the more actions I can take that leads me towards doing the things that will align with that outcome. But if you're afraid to actually answer the question because you're worried it's going to show where you're falling short right now, we avoid the exercise. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. as a morbidly obese teenager, trust me, if I was invited at a gym to come in for a fitness assessment, I would be like, no freaking way. Wait, I need you to tell me that I'm out of shape and fat? No, I know that already. I don't need you to tell me that. You know, and, it, it, and I think that's sort of the response that some of us get when, it, when we're presented with ideas of change. You know, we automatically feel negative about it because it also means that we have to acknowledge and own the fact that there's areas that, yeah, I, I want to change too. And, and it's, it's, it's almost like feeling naked, you know, cause it, we do have to get vulnerable. And that's why my talk is circled around vulnerability. And, and I know I speak from a man's perspective because uh, that's again, how I'm presenting it from my perspective, but I think there's a lot of relatability to what I was sharing. And, and especially if you want to hear from a woman that speaks to this, the power of vulnerability. I mean, Brene Brown is just a beautiful resource. She really specializes in the business side of things and where vulnerability has place in the workplace. Um, but you know, it it has place everywhere in our lives, but not for the sake of just being vulnerable, right? For connection, understanding, and support. That's where it comes in.
0: Right. So that really uh, segues into my next question. Yeah. Because you you mentioned vulnerability a few times now, and it was something that was uh, featured pretty prominently when I was researching you. So speak to us about, you said that vulnerability is a human thing. (laughs) Um, Did I have that right then? Yeah, you did. Spot on. Okay. All right. Vulnerability is a human thing. I just, um, maybe you could kind of clarify for us what that really means or what you're really getting at.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's a human quality, you know, like vulnerability I believe is a skill that any one of us can develop. Now, many of us have a negative idea of what that word is. Um, and to be fair, it it does have different connotations, right? Depends on the context that we're using it. But For most of us, we haven't used it in a positive context, okay? We haven't thought about vulnerability being a a healthy skill to to develop. We often think about something to be avoided. It's a weakness. Now, as a man who identifies as a man, I know when I'm in my men's groups and and I'm chatting about this and asking me what their thoughts are initially around that word, it's fairly negative, the answers. You know, it's seen as something as being weak, something that that opens us up to uh, being taken advantage of. You know, sometimes we might share things and be vulnerable about something that's very near and dear to us, but then someone might take that and and misuse it against us. So we have history of this. You know, many of us as men who identify as men have had these negative experiences around vulnerability. Maybe we we cried once to a friend and the friend got really closed off and wasn't very supportive. In fact, almost ran away from us, didn't support us. And, And so now we have this negative feeling around being, you know, open about our emotions and, and, As a man crying, you know it's it's, now we might be associated to something negative, but it's not. It's an expression. It's an expression of emotions. There's nothing wrong with that. I've cried many times in my life. I'll tell you, when my daughters are born, you couldn't turn them off. (laughs) You know, like it was like nonstop. Um, But vulnerability—if you really think about it—and I—and I I always put this back to the people that are wondering about this topic. But think about how vulnerability has been something good in your life. You think about the first time you had that first date with that significant other. Well, someone had to get vulnerable to even ask, you know, to put ourselves out and say, I'm interested in this person. Gosh, are they interested in me too? You know, it took an act of vulnerability to go in for that very first job interview, one that you know is going to challenge you. You have to open up to that person to show them what kind of candidate you are, that you're the best person for the position. That takes a level of vulnerability too. It connects us. It's what allows us to discover what's relatable between our lives. And it's when we find that relatability, we develop deeper connections and understanding. And isn't that what we're all looking for? And here's the little thing about vulnerability that I've observed many, many years now. It always takes someone to go first. Always think about it, you know, like often I would find myself getting around a group of men that I don't know. And, you know, we're all sort of looking at each other and sizing each other up. You know, I go to a networking event and we're supposed to be here to network. And yet we've got this sort of weird gaze going back and forth, sizing each other up, trying to get a read on who the other person is. And, you know, like it's just wild, right? Like that's what my default was. And I didn't like that because it meant I was closed off to actually connection, to connecting with others. So as I developed this, this idea around vulnerability, and maybe it is a skill that we can get better at and we can do in a healthy way brings us all a bit more closer to understanding one another a bit better, you know? Right. And it's finding a place to practice and to be the one that goes first. Because <laughs> what you'll find is you go first, it gives person that you're connecting with permission to now also be vulnerable back. Right. You now it's like the first time you say, I love you to somebody. Someone's got to say it first, you know, in that relationship. Right. And it's a big act of vulnerability. It's like, Oh my gosh, I'm putting my heart out here now. I love you. And if you don't get that love back, it's like, oh, oh my gosh, right? Like we get this feeling. Yeah, right. and, and, and again, that could be a negative connotation to being vulnerable. It's like, gosh, I, I thought I could be vulnerable with this person. I can't be because they just hurt me. They crushed me. I won't be vulnerable ever again. You know, right. and we hear about that in the relationship space all the time. And, and so this is this idea of vulnerability. And listen, I am just starting the conversation off. There's a lot more individuals out there that are way more certified and qualified to speak to this topic. All I've shared is my experience with it to this point in my life and what it's brought me. And I invite others to just take a harder look at it and maybe do a little bit of due diligence around where does vulnerability play into your life? Is it something that you avoid and avoid at all costs? Well, I would ask you, why do you think that's limiting you at being the person that you said you want to be? Because Mm -hmm. I think you'll find that no matter what that vision is for where you want to be and what kind of life you want to have, vulnerability does play into it in some fashion or form. So, why not learn how to channel in a way that elevates you and allows you to achieve your goals and your vision much more quickly? Because, in my experience, when I started to get more vulnerable, things happened a lot more fast. They did. Right. I, I saw yeah. change it, uh, happen more quickly. I found my connection and deeper relationships happen more quickly. It's amazing. And all I had to do was start opening up a little bit more.
0: Right. It's hard to kind of, hard to kind of, um, steal yourself in a way that you know if you're because like you say if you become vulnerable then you have made yourself open for attack rejection that sort of thing yes but then you you also added that in order to be or to advance in life in order to keep moving forward you have to continuously be willing to be vulnerable so if you're taking on like anything new in life you're being you're opening yourself up, you're being vulnerable in the sense you're opening yourself up to the possibility that you're going to be absolutely terrible at it, whatever it is, it's something brand new. And that's the part of, that's how you grow, you know? Yes. yes. And um, it's, But the problem is, you know, it's the catch 22 is, is like, you know, the longer you live, the more you kind of are you start slinking back from doing just that because you've a lifetime of maybe getting burned. Yes. And so, yeah, right. how do you? So, how do you really like guard against that kind of thing? Is kind of becomes the bigger question. You know what.
1: Sean, I got to say, that's just an amazing question. And I wish we had a lot more time. And uh, my, my fault. I'm just looking at the time. I'm like, wow, man, we've been jamming for like an hour. Yeah, yeah, I love I it. I love it. just and ran by. I, I think the thing around vulnerability, um, it's, again, trying to find a, a safe place to practice developing the skill. Uh, just as an example, uh, I discovered Toastmasters. I guess it'd be mm-hmm. 13-ish years ago, right around the same time I stopped drinking. And Toastmasters, those that don't know, just short and sweet of it, it's a, a nonprofit global organization that helps people become more effective public speakers and leaders. And it develops those skill sets in a very safe environment, very supportive environment. I love that because I'm someone that, as I mentioned, dealt with social anxiety most of his life. Speaking to more than one person at a time, very intimidating, okay? Um, mm-hmm. But I knew because I wanted to make greater impact with my life. I knew I had a message I wanted to share. So I knew it was a, a, a thing that was holding me back, was this, this fear around public speaking and connecting with larger audiences. So I found a community to help me develop those skills. But it had to be a community that I felt safe in. And I tried a lot of different clubs. I tried a couple of different programs and not that are outside of Toastmasters that help people develop their public speaking skills. And I realized Toastmasters was it. It was the environment I needed because it allowed me to develop those skills to a point where, yeah, do I still get nervous speaking to people? Hell yeah, I do. Before I go on the stage and I'm about to do a keynote, my hand's sweating. Yep. My heart rate racing. Yep. <laughs> Is my stomach turning? Yep. <laughs> but I've learned to channel that nervous energy into something positive that allows me to make an impact. And and so my relationship with that nervousness and that symptoms of the nervousness, I now channel in a more positive way. But I had to learn to do that. Uh-huh. I needed a safe environment to do it. So right. on the flip side, if we're talking about vulnerability as a skill that you want to develop, find a, a men's group. If you're a man who identifies as a man or, or, or just, you know, by birth and, and that gender is the one that you want to align with, well, then find a support group of men coming together to support men to practice opening up and being more authentic with another group of men. On the flip side, women have had this figured out for a long time. There's women's groups all over the place. I'm just taking a page from their manual, okay? Like they are literally (laughs) with leaps and bounds ahead of us on this one. Um, Not to say that we can't catch up because I think we can, you know, and it's important. I mean, you look at all the problems in the world, there's a man at every table. You know, and <laughs> calling my gender out right now because I am I am I got a. I live with three women, you know, my wife and my two daughters. And I'm like, you know, what, I'd rather give them the keys to the kingdom because I think they'll run it better than everybody else. And what I mean by that is empowering women to run this place because uh, I, I just think they'll do better. You know, I really do. And um, anyways, that that's sort of the long and short of it. Just find a community where you can practice developing the skill in a way that reminds you of everything that's possible because it is, you are possible, but you have to decide to put yourself in the space for growth to happen. All right. That takes a decision, you know, and then an immediate right. action. And it's not always easy, but it right. is always worth it. worth it. And that's sort of where I'll end.
0: <laughs> All right. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, uh, yeah, you're right. This hour has just flown by here and, uh, it's, it's been amazing. So, one thing I like, to, I like that last question. One thing I like to sure. ask people at the end of the at the end of the uh, recording here is mm-hmm. just kind of like to summarize a lot of what you said in a, in, in a kind of a single sentence or a single mm-hmm. paragraph. So if people remember nothing about everything that you just said right now, if you could have them just walk away with one thing, what do you, what would it be?
1: You know, if you're in a period of struggle in your life, I'm going to just take a, a page from Buddha's book. This too shall pass. And all he meant by that, and it's the only thing that we know to be absolutely for certain, is that nothing stays as it is. You know, there's an impermanence of the universe. And I know I'm getting really metaphysical and a little bit philosophical now, but there's truth in this, and science has caught up to prove this. So if you're someone that prefers the analytical and prefers the data-driven decisions, science has proven that nothing stays as is. Given enough time, everything changes, or it's in a state of change. And we're not immune to that. We are parts of that change. Perfect. Now, when he said this too shall pass, he was referring, most people believe, to the negative stuff, the bad stuff, the hard stuff in life. Don't worry. Navigate through it because you will get through this. It will get better again. And it wasn't until I did my 10-day Vipassana meditation. That's a 10-day silent retreat. And so I went away for 10 days and literally meditated every day during your waking hours. It is like one of the hardest things I've ever done, but also the most clarity, creating things I've ever done. And here's the thing. The meditation teacher at that retreat said, you know, as much as Buddha was referring to all the negatives, he was actually emphasizing the positives because those two shall pass that first date, that first time you see your child take that first step, you know, that first time you land a new client, you know, the first time your client does something, hits a new PR, right. Mm -hmm. Or a personal best, or they hit a new weight goal, right? Like that too shall pass. So be extremely present for every moment, both the positive and the negative as they happen, because that is your life and that's the journey you're on. So don't close your eyes because you might miss it. <laughs> and don't yeah. worry, this too shall pass. So that's all I want to leave because I know we talked a lot about change today, but I want people right. to recognize the difference between being a victim of change and a champion of change is just a shift in perspective. That's it.
0: Yeah. Because we're actually exactly.
1: both at the same time, right?
0: <laughs> right. Exactly right. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been uh, an, ama- an amazing conversation. Thanks so much, Di, for coming along. Appreciate your insights here. And um, I will put his contact information, his website, his social media in the show notes and where you can, yeah, you can you touch base with him um, if you'd like to. Of course, don't forget, I also have, you can reach my social media too. And don't forget, I have online programs there. They're there to address a lot of the questions. Uh, common problems that people have with balance, strength, coordination, neuromuscular development, all that good stuff, all the things you need to be healthy and wise throughout your life. But, uh, die once again, thanks so much, man.
1: And thank you. Yeah. Just real quick, quick last comment here. You know, Sean, what you're putting out to the world. Thank you. I know a lot of times it's thankless what you do. And I know as content creators, I'm in the same boat. And I've gotten
0: a lot of thank yous lately and I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Good.
1: Okay. Well, you're going to get a lot more. And and please recognize it because I know for every one thank that you get, there's another 10 to 20 people thinking it. And I just want to acknowledge you and for you creating this space to allow these conversations to happen. It's not an everyday thing. It's not like this is everywhere and accessible to everyone. But the format that you're providing, it is. And and I just want to say thank you for creating that because, man, we need more of this. We need so much more of this, you know, to offset the negative in the world. We need more positive Mm -hmm. people like yourself creating this great content that helps all of us navigate changes in our own lives and others. And I just want to say thank you. You know, really, thank you.
0: Not a problem. Not a problem. It's totally my pleasure here. Totally my pleasure. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, and I look to see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments, cancel anytime. Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's Ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. You never know you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.